welcome to How I Got Here, the inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Hi, this is uh, uh, How I Got Here. Very warm welcome to everybody for tuning in to another episode. Uh, these are Mozio and FocusWire's in-depth weekly interviews with innovators and entrepreneurs in travel and transportation. We're absolutely delighted uh, this week to be joined by Jochen Engar. He's the uh, co-founder and CEO at Flixbus. He's based and the company is based in Germany. Uh, the former consultant at Boston Consulting Group created the company in 2011 with uh, Daniel Krauss and Andre Schweimannen beginning what has been a steady growth trajectory, including a string of acquisitions, mergers, and an expansion around the globe ever since. Uh, the company has raised in excess of half a billion dollars to date. A very warm welcome to you, Jochen. Thank you very much for joining us on How I Got Here. Yeah, first, um, thanks for having me. I'm great okay. to be on, on the podcast. Okay. Um, and obviously happy to give a bit of background on our story, on, on my story, on, on how I got here. Okay, and uh, you've led me very nicely into the first question, which is we always ask our guests to answer the question, uh, how did you get here? We've, we've launched the business on a, let's say, w what we feel is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So um, when we were still um, in consulting, that was Andre, myself, and Daniel, our third co-founder, had another job towards um, tech so it was with Microsoft back then. Um, we looked at what's happening out there in politics and the markets and, and we're discussing different business ideas and um, at, at one point came across the deregulation of the German um, intercity coach market and that was actually something that the former coalition um, government had put down in their agreement in 2009 and then no, nothing happened for about two years and the whole thing came back to media attention in 2011 um, and that was when I was actually doing a PhD back then which, and this is a spoiler, I never finished because um, I had to decide at one point whether to go for Flixbus or, or finish my PhD. So I um, ended up never finishing that. And then the whole discussion started again and we felt, hey, this is a massive opportunity to build a business. And it's, it's that unique situation where you can, on the one hand, have an old school market, old fashioned industry and bring in a new approach to it on the brand marketing and especially technology side. And then this once in a lifetime opportunity where you can disrupt a market that didn't really exist before. And that's where we felt, hey, this is the opportunity that we need to jump on and let's just try it out um, and, and see what happens. And this is how we um, eventually launched Flixbus in 2013. Um, and then quite a lot has happened um, over the years. Um, so today we're in 35 countries. Um, we've gone intermodal, so added trains to our portfolio. Um, expanded all across Europe. I've launched in the US about two years ago. And I've um, entered into Turkey and uh, well, continuing to grow the business massively. I mean, we want to make sure everybody in the world has um, sustainable and affordable mobility and really want to change the way people travel. I've always been struck by the Flixbus story because whenever it is mentioned, and I'm going to pass over to someone who's much more um, kind of an expert in the world of transportation, David, my uh, co-host here, but I've, whenever I read anything about the history of Flixbus, it always references that deregulation of the German bus market. And I mean, you can talk us through how that worked, but I've, the one thing I've always wondered, because it is referenced so much is, could you have launched 
or had the idea for Flixbus if that deregulation hadn't happened? Is, was that the only trigger really behind the idea? It's, a, it's actually a very good question because it was the initial trigger behind the idea. So we said, hey, if there's a deregulation, this creates opportunity. And we've seen it in, in other sort of state and regulated industries like telecommunications, um, for example, that massive businesses can be built based on deregulation. So we found this exciting in the first place. Um, and then our initial business case, our plan, our strategy was built on a deregulated market where you had free access and could connect cities. I mean, this wasn't possible for about for over 80 years. So they built the law to protect trains from competition and then ultimately decided to, to change it. But when we were between 2011 and when we launched 2013, we spent a lot of time talking to the industry and trying to um, sort of persuade bus partners to work with us. Um, and until a very late point, it wasn't clear whether it was actually going to happen. So that meant they finally made the decision to, to really deregulate in August 2012. And we were like getting increasingly nervous around that time when we felt, okay, what if this doesn't happen? Like we've spent so much time in preparation and what if it yeah. doesn't happen? And is there any other way around it? So we looked into other regulatory angles on starting lines. And on an EU level, there's always been an opportunity or possibility to run lines between countries. And we looked into that. Could you build a German network through cross-border lines somehow? And could you start um, launching something and, and, and then wait for the actual deregulation? And um, so we tried to find entrepreneurial ways around it. Fortunately, um, then they did re deregulate and ultimately we could sort of execute on our initial plans. So that was... Yeah. I guess lucky after all. Yeah, Dave. So, you know, playing a little bit off that deregulation, um, you weren't the only ones to see that opportunity, right? Uh, I, I know, I think the most infamous uh, merger you guys had was with Mein Fernbus, but I remember around, you know, six, seven years ago when I was traveling around Germany, um, there were a bunch of different bus lines that popped up and I took a few of them. And a few years later, I inquired as to... Uh, if they existed anymore and was informed that you had bought them too. And you guys seem to have gone on quite the acquisition spree and uh, bought out a lot of different competitors. And how did you like think about that, both from a business strategic standpoint, but I'm also fascinated a little, it reminded me of the kind of the PayPal story of like the merger of, uh, I think it was called X and, and PayPal. I forget the two names of the companies of like, you know, it takes a lot of, um, checking one's ego at the door to to execute some of these these types of mergers where you have to give up more power so i'd love to just get a little background about that sure sure and also a very fair point i think when we launched we knew look we were the outsiders in the industry we had no clue about it in, in general like had no travel transportation background but felt um with a like fresh mindset to it you can build something new and something cool and something big ultimately and um then everybody came into the market. So there was the state rail guys, there was the UK transportation companies, the National Express, Stagecoach, and launched into the market with their brands. We've had even Deutsche Post or the Postal Service together with the Automotive Club launched a brand. Um, so everybody was there and everybody was usually bigger, supposedly stronger financially, um, and like having more experience in, in, in the business. And, and we always said there needs to be a like national player that is like large and, and connects all the relevant cities. You have very good inventory to, to your customers ultimately. Um, and then there was us and Mindfirma, so the two startups that were growing more aggressively than everybody else, because we both had that strong hypothesis. Um, and we also were aware that this will only work on a, let's say a unit economic level to make the routes profitable on every trip and ultimately like the whole network and portfolio profitable. 
if you have a more consolidated situation. So it doesn't make sense if you end up with four, five, six players that kind of split up the market equally and continue to put pressure on, on, on everything, marketing, pricing, et cetera. So we knew that there needs to be consolidation somehow. And then at some point we felt, okay, we ra we're rather gonna go and be an active consolidator instead of kind of waiting it out or being consolidated at some point. And that's where we, where we, we started talking to different players and, we, and, and ultimately the, the whole industry is rather small. So everybody knows everybody and there's continuous talks on all sorts of stuff, regulatory issues, how do you deal with the cities, national regulators, et cetera. So it's a, it's a rather small community. Um, so we, we've had discussions. The only company that we didn't talk to was Mind Fambles back then, because we felt this is the enemy. If someone's beating us, then it's going to be them. I mean, then at some point we said, look, we need to talk, and there needs to be at least a, a discussion whether there's a joint way forward. Um, and then we actually we've sent our um, our um, investor from the venture capital side. We sent him so go talk to the founders if they're open for a discussion, and if they're not, we can just say it was your crazy idea and it wasn't our idea and strategy. Um, so that, that's how, how we started. And then when we met, like the two founders, founder team met, we felt, hey, this is closer than we thought. And we have a very similar idea about the business and the strategy and the direction. And we were like totally surprised because the base hypothesis is these guys must be idiots because they are our enemies. Um, and we figured, hey, they're actually kind of nice. And, um, and that's ultimately how we got the discussion going. And this is also coming back to your ego point, where we, of course, we had these concerns around, okay, what's going to happen? How do you make this work? How do you also um, build ultimately the joint company, shareholdings? What's the equity story for each and everybody? How do you make economics work, et cetera, et cetera? So there's a whole lot of complexity around it. Um, but this is where we felt it's actually on a, on a personal level it works, on a vision level and strategy level it works. And actually the two companies are pretty complementary in terms of who's good at what. Um, and they've been very strong on the, let's say, classical transportation optimization piece, network planning, et cetera. And we've been the aggressive e-commerce type of company. And that actually was a very, very strong match. And that translated also into team capabilities, et cetera. And we felt there's so much value to be captured if you put this together, that um, we ultimately kind of got our act together um, and, and made it work back then. That's, you know, it's, it's fascinating. And you mentioned, uh... Uh, Deutsche Post uh, and uh, you're having launching their own. I remember being around there at the time, those those yellow and black buses. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I'm not sure if you guys are the ones to buy them, but I think they're out of business now. But they like, I remember thinking that it's like, it's so weird. It would be like if our DHL or FedEx decided to launch a bus company. And I was just like, I, there, I recognize the kind of like, you know, oddness of that entire <laughs> endeavor. They came with the history of, hey, we were riding horse carriages. Why shouldn't we do coach services? That's pretty much the same. We're like, okay, that's a long shot, but well, so. Yeah. Well, so you, you mentioned your, like your guys' model. And so I'm actually curious if you can maybe this might contribute to why you guys were able to, to scale much faster, right? Like I know, um, correct me if I'm wrong, part of your model is almost kind of like Uber for buses and that you don't own the buses. You, you work with charter buses locally. And um, I remember when someone first explained your model to me, I was like, yeah, you can't do Uber for buses. They're buses. Like, you know, like how many buses are laying around? It's not like Priuses or something like that. And um you know, then, you know, someone mentioned to me, I think in the U.S. there's something like 5,000 independent charter bus companies. And that's where, you know, like you, you guys might draw from. And so I, you know, I'd love to just you know, hear you elaborate a little bit more on what that model was and if it differed from the, the Deutsche Post and these other guys that ended up not being as successful. Sure. Um, 
And then it, it ultimately comes down to our initial hypothesis on what do you need to win in that market and how can we as a team and then with what we have make a difference. And we, when we first looked at the market and the opportunity, we went through different business models and everything from you go out, buy a bus, employ a driver, start a first route and then hope it works and then scale over time. Um, to let's only build an aggregating layer where you redistribute traffic to existing providers and make a margin of that. And we felt you need more than that because in, in the market, what's, what's really key is that you ultimately control the customer experience and build a branded, curated, high quality, safe environment um, for the customers. That's what they're looking for. And if you look for mid and long distance um, travel, even more than in urban and, and short distance mobility, there's a big element of planning and I want to be safe that it works and it needs to be reliable. And we felt we need to control this. And then we said, if we look at the industry and the structure that you described about the S is pretty much true for any given market across the world. So you have a vast um, and like a big um, landscape of fragmented suppliers, like usually small mid-sized companies, family-owned businesses. In Germany is, is over three and a half, four thousand 4,000 um, individual companies. And we've seen these guys and we felt Okay, they know how to operate buses. They've done this for decades and generations. And um, we, we won't add too much value here. We need to focus on the, the platform piece, the brand building, the marketing, the product experience, and really build the tech around it to control it. And we need to partner with these guys because they know what they're doing. And we can actually use also their existing infrastructure, piggyback on depots, maintenance facilities, et cetera, what they already have in place. And, um, and they would add the fleet to the whole game and the drivers and the operations, and we do everything else. And that was our initial hypothesis, and that's still the model until today. So if you compare it to ride-hailing, the difference for us is we're not working with individual drivers, but we're working with companies that would ultimately dedicate a certain share of their fleet and their operations to business with us. So we usually make up 10 to 30% of the entire business from them, um, and the rest, they're active in other parts of the industry. They may run public transportation, so operate services for cities, um, do their own charter services around events, travel, etc. Have own travel offerings where they kind of ship um, people over for weekend trips to the Alps or whatever they do. Um, and then a certain share of their fleet they would dedicate to us. And then um, we, 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 over time, we figured it's actually quite, quite strong for them because their core industry doesn't really grow. So it's more about competition, competing on price, winning market share from someone else, and it's very local and regional. So that we were their access to the market. We were their ticket to a stronger growth story to build something on top of what they had, in many cases, inherited from their fathers or grandfathers. So they had a growth story for themselves. And that's why we could ultimately excite um, our partners to join us and to also take, and that's the, the sort of second part of the model, um, take entrepreneurial risk with us. So we are, in the end, we work on a revenue sharing scheme with them. Um, over time, we've developed um, it into a, revenue share on the one hand, but also minimum guarantee on the other hand. So we're guaranteeing them a certain sort of income from operating buses with us because we don't want them to, to run empty buses and take all that risk. And we have a better understanding of which routes are going to work, which markets will work, how are we going to get unit economics to, to profitable levels, etc. So we're giving them that safety net so they can actually take also the investment into the fleet, building up driver pools, operations, etc. And we usually have a longer term um, commitment and relationship with them. So that's, I guess, a bit of a dif difference to the classical gig economy that you may, may see in right hand. 
Yeah, well, it's, it's, it reminds me actually of how Uber tried to at one point launch a marketplace for leasing cars to kind of like maybe uh, you know, bring people in and that failed miserably for them. Um, but uh, it sounds like you're having a lot more success. But you mentioned an, an equal, a, a really interesting um, tidbit of information though, controlling the brand experience. And this is something I've nerded out on because I remember six, seven years ago, I was living in San Francisco. And if you opened up Uber, you'd see two to three uh, cars around. If you opened up uh, what was at the time called uh, Flywheel, I think, um, you'd you'd see like a hundred cabs around. And there was a real, um, you know, like, and I, I think not, you know, not bullshit question out there about like, would Uber win in the end or what would supply um, really the thing that matters? And in the end, my kind of armchair analysis of why Uber won is because in the end, they recognize that going at one level deeper and controlling the user experience was better, um, even if it meant their scaling was slower. And getting a thousand cabs on the uh, the system was useless if you didn't weren't able to kick a bad cab driver off because you were going through some other company. And this is something I've continually thought was interesting in the transportation market. And in, and in general, because in Silicon Valley, you get pushed to do the quote unquote scalable thing that can sometimes be deceiving um, on the surface level and I'm curious how you guys thought about how deep do you go? Is it branded Flixbus seats? Is it make sure you have Wi-Fi? Is it, or is it just kind of like, hey, you know, you, you didn't, the bus didn't break down. Where, where is your level of, you know, of, of brand, uh, you know, guarantee? Yeah. And that's, that's certainly something that also evolved over time for us. So I said earlier, we're big believers in you need to control the customer experience and you need to control it as deep as you can. Um, and in the end, we're always trying to make this work through technology. So we're building technology also to control how easy it is to check check in on our buses, help drivers navigate through their day with all their routines around. I'm on. I'm like launching my bus in the morning, um, arriving at the station, checking in the passengers can sell tickets, um, etc. And then we, we go down into we send we in parts we're already centrally controlling what's the welcome speech that um, the customers hear when they enter the bus. And this then also translates into, and this is, I guess, where Silicon Valley is struggling a bit, into the hardware. So we're also defining and pre-specifying, this is the equipment we want to have, i.e. we have pre-specified buses with the large OEMs. Um, so if one of our partners goes to Daimler, MIN, um, et cetera, and says, I want a Flix bus, then they get a pre-specified vehicle. It's all detailed, and they even get pre-agreed um, purchase prices and, and uh, maybe even um, financing agreements. And we want to make sure that the, the whole experience is as harmonized as possible. So it, it shouldn't matter whether you board a bus in Berlin, Paris, Stockholm, um, Bucharest, Vienna, um, Rome, wherever. It should always be that same and consistent experience. And we've certainly been, I guess, a bit more pragmatic at the beginning. We just took um, the buses that um, our partners had, but over time really moved into a more consistent experience. And this goes then down into, we're training the drivers on this is our safety, safety concept. This is how we want you to convey our brand messages, how we want the, um, the service for customers to be. Um, we're defining the snack list that you have on the bus um, and, and really make sure that, that we really have control over that experience. Um, and also, as you said, we, have, we don't have sort of full control in terms of you need to fire that driver, but if we get complaints about someone on a continuous basis, we can exclude him from operating on one of our buses and they need to shift the driver to other parts of their business, for example. So that's, whole customer feedback, continuous improvement, and ultimate control over customer experience is really, really key, key to us. And we're really, again, managing on a, on a very, very granular level. And 
just a quick kind of follow up on that one, if I may, Jochen, before um, my, my, my next kind of series of questions. And that's, you know, you said if the, the experience with the driver is not very good, then you have the ability to kind of take things to the next level. Did you find or have you found over time that you've had to do that less frequently? In other words, did you have teething problems in that particular area around consistency of the experience of the driver and then over time of people who've kind of the the subsidiaries have understood your kind of you know brand values that you've had fewer problems i mean i guess first of all as we're revenue sharing with our partners they have a very strong incentive in delivering a good service so if not the individual driver is incentivized to to do his job properly it's ultimately his boss so the owner of the bus company because he would um, I mean, he obviously understands the, the correlation between customer satisfaction, repeat customers, and economic success of, of his business and, and his lines that he runs with us. So there's a strong incentive inherently in the model. Um, and then also over time, there's a certain effect of the companies and the partners that we work with get more used to this is the way we operate, this is the way we run schedules, operations, quality, training, et cetera, et cetera. So there's that routine that comes in that helps us also kind of manage out all the small um, things and, and little challenges that you have when you onboard um, partners and that in the end translates also for us into much reduced complexity. So we've um, we've come to a point where we usually then have a very stable partner base and if we grow in a market, we first go to them and say, look, we would need more capacity from this and that region. You'd be um, well suited also geography-wise to, to run these services. Would you take them over? And only if they don't want to take them over, we would go and try to acquire additional partners. And with that again, built for more consistency, easier handling of our partner base and ultimately um, frictionless operations. Now, change um, tack if I may. I'm always um, regular listeners to how I got here will notice that it's often David who gets into the, the mechanics of business models and the more kind of cerebral intelligent type questions. And I'm often interested in the dynamics within the actual startup and the companies themselves. I mean, you've got two co-founders in Andre and Daniel. I mean, in those early days, how did you decide how to divide the roles? That's the first part of the question. And, and, yeah. and more recently, as you've you know, become more established and grown to the levels that you have, how do you, you know, I'm guessing you're three very close friends. So how do you kind of overcome issues or how is the dynamic between the three of you now? Yeah. In, in the early days, it was more of a um, who, who likes to do what? Because in the end, <laughs> we, we basically both have, all, all, all three of us have done pretty much everything with the exception of Daniel has always been our tech guy. So he, was, he has a tech background. So he's running the whole platform engineering um, architecture tech piece. And that was clear because nobody, like none of us had any clue in that anyways. <laughs> um, so, so that was easy. Um, and then Andre and myself, like in the very early days, both of us, we were busy basically trying to acquire bus partners who would work with us. And we've, we've usually done these trips and meetings um, together. And then over time, moved into a split where I was looking after um, marketing, sales um, in the early days, um, and a lot around fundraising, investor relations, um, and, and building up that side of the, of, of the business, plus HR. So building the organization, recruiting people, building out the team, et cetera. And Andre was over time 
developing that strong relationship into the industry to the bus partners, which was much more operational. And then in the end also translated into, um, I guess what we have today, which is, um, again, Daniel continues to run the tech piece. And that's, that's again, an obvious one. Um, Andre is very much focused on um, the P&L management of, of our countries, of our regions, plus the commercial function. So we also moved over marketing into that. But you have just a full control over country responsibility and all the commercial functions around marketing, sales, pricing, and network planning. Um, and I've come to a point where I felt I had most value in looking after the um, what we call corporate development. So all the M&A activities that we, that we were doing over the past few years, plus um, international expansion. So whenever we go to a new country, we would do a lot of analysis first, build up a launch team, and then try to get this rolling into a more operational setup and business. And then I kind of throw it over to Andre um, to take care of, of, of um, and the ongoing business. And that's been a split that, that has worked really well for us um, and that has developed over time um, rather naturally. Um, and as you said, we've, we've always been um, close friends all along the way. And, and for us, it's always been very critical to have super open communication and also take our regular, um, we call them founder offsites, to take at least a day off or so in another location and, and really get down to okay, what, what do we want to do the next 12, 18, 24 months and then beyond? And is it still, um, does it still fit to our long-term vision and strategy, what we're doing, where we're spending our time on? Um, are we doing the right things? What's, the, what's the, the current situation of the organization, of the team? Is there anything that we need to resolve? Any sort of problem challenge that we see that may come up um, anytime soon? So really discussing high level vision, direction, strategy, organization, and then also always our own and, and very personal, okay, what's on your mind at this point? Are you yeah. feeling okay? Um, and, and like everybody kind of talks about, okay, this is what's going on. This is how I feel about things. This is difficult for me. This is, this is easy for me. This is where I have a lot of optimism. This is where I'm a bit more skeptical, et cetera. Um, and really have these open, open discussions on a, on a regular basis. And that's, that's always been super critical for us. Um, and in the end, Sorry, go ahead. I guess, and, and in the end, I guess all of this is based on a very, very high level of trust to each other. We just trust right. in, in each and everyone that um, everybody is doing their jobs properly. Um, and then uh, I said that we can communicate very openly if something doesn't go um, the way we want it to go. Have there been moments where it's, um, where it's really kind of tested that dynamic, whether it's been a particular challenge during a year or an acquisition or anything that's gone on in the, in the kind of the, the corporate development of the business over the last, you know, nine or 10 years, have there been moments where, you know, that kind of relationship has been tested because it's been difficult or is it, or is it always been almost kind of like a wonderful peace in the Valley between the three of you? <laughs> I guess whoever's been, on a founder team and, and founded a company and says everything has gone well all along the years, it's probably a liar. Um, <laughs> so, um, no, I think, I mean, of course we went through hard times and this also has an impact on, on the relationship that, that the three of us had. And then um, you had points where, where we, we were questioning, are we in, going into the right direction? Uh, is every one of us taking the right decisions? Um, and we continue. And I guess that that's the, that's sort of the, the big, the, big asset for us we have always challenged ourselves but in a in a constructive way so it was never the big issue when when someone asked have you really thought, thought this through and and this is the right thing that you're doing here and 
can't we do this faster or, or shouldn't we do this differently or why is this so expensive or like the like whatever difficult question you may have we've always i think been very open um, amongst us to have these discussions and, and that made it easier also if, if things didn't work out i mean we've, we've had certainly tough times where i mean we're a few times almost running out of money along the way so the question was are we going to get that fundraising done are we going to muddle it through somehow and um, what are we going to do here um, on the it part we've had times where we had so much demand our system broke down we were like christ's sake just fix it so we can sell tickets um all all that stuff happened all along the way i mean i, I said i think in the end it's always been super critical for us to have that open discussion and and in the end nobody's pissed if he gets a challenge from the rest of the of the group um yeah. and that that's been key to us uh, just a uh, last one from me for a moment I and mean, it kind of references the very first question that i asked you which was around deregulation i mean as you said yourself the opportunity was seized upon because of what was going on in the German market. What are the conditions that you've used when you've expanded overseas? I mean, have you moved into markets that are already deregulated or are on the verge of being deregulated, or have you taken a different approach with launching into other countries? Yeah. I mean, the, the German case um, for us was deregulation. Um, and then interestingly in our business, internationalization happens organically in a sense that very soon we connected um, cities outside of Germany to the core network. So we were going to Amsterdam, Prague, um, Vienna, um, Budapest, Zurich, um, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you have that international aspect, aspect relatively early anyways. And then we looked into um, what's like interesting markets that we could um, take the business to and where, where, did, where did we feel the, the model will work. Um, and then the, the second bigger market that we launched domestically was Italy. Um, and also a little, little bit of a, out of a coincidence where the guy who, who still runs our Italian business actually approached us and said, hey, I want to be part of your team. I believe Italy is a fantastic opportunity. Like in, in his job interview, he pitched the expansion to Italy to us. And we were like, okay, first, this is a great guy. Second, this is a massive opportunity. So let's go and hire him. Um, and everybody thought we we're crazy back then because we were like still fighting in Germany, didn't have any clear path towards market leadership or anything that's, that looks like profitability. Um, and, and then we're looking into launching another country. So, um, but we felt we need to, to take that investment back then. And then this is then how it, how it sort of um, went along. Um, and we also launched them into France, which by the way, got deregulated in 2015 too. So that was the other big European market that was still regulated. Um, so the, the, and then the European expansion was pretty organic out of, you just connect cities in that market first, and then you go domestic, and then you continue to build out the network. The bigger move for us was really to go to the US from out of the European um, situation and network. Well, we felt we have to do that move for, for a few reasons. First is we're sure the model is gonna work also without the synergies that you have to your core network. It can also work in just any market if you, if you build it properly. And then um, the other part was we felt if there's a global competitor emerging that could be dangerous for us, then it's likely to come out of the US with all the innovation that happens there, all the funding. So we said we need to be first um, to make sure that nobody else um, can actually do it. Um, and that's why we, we eventually decided um, to go to the US um, and then launch us in California um, to make sure that we're very visible to where usually these businesses are coming from. Love it. 
yeah, I was living in San Francisco up until a couple of years ago. So um, I remember, I forget when exactly you launched, but sometime over the last couple of years, if it went back and saw the Fleeks buses going up and down the five from SF to me, uh, to uh, uh, Los Angeles, excuse me. Um, so something I wanted to kind of bring up was the kind of culture around buses. So in America, you know, and I think this might be different than, uh, than Europe, at least in degrees, um, you know, for us, you know, buses were you know, Greyhound, really not uh, fantastic brands, right? And we actually had uh, one of our very first interviews was with Polina from Wanderu, and we talked to her about how one of the trends that she was seeing when she started it, that must have been nine uh, years ago now, um, was the kind of upgrade of the bus experience and the, the rise of Megabus. Um, and I, I thought that was funny because from my standpoint, I was like, wait a second, Megabus was like the improvement was, was the, my, my first gut, you know, reaction there. But, you know, she had a point in that, you know, compared to, to Grey, uh, Greyhound, it certainly was. Um, I'm also an investor in, in Cabin, which is the overnight, uh, you know, bus company. And, you know, they talk a lot about, um, kind of trying to destigmatize, you know, buses, and they're the most efficient, you know, uh, way of actually getting from point A to point B. And I'm curious how you guys have thought about that, because it is still often, you know, considered a quote unquote lower class way of traveling in the U.S. at least. Um, and how how have you tried to change that that image? Yeah, it's it's that's um, a very very fangled question. I mean, if you look at um, what the situation was before we launched in Europe then it's, it's pretty much exactly the same like in the US. Um, so the, the image of traveling on a bus wasn't very nice. So if you're, if you're friendly, you could see it as a mean of transportation that seniors would use to do trips over the weekend um, where people try to sell them weird stuff like heating blankets and these things. So it's not like you had the, the nicest image of um, that mean of transportation. And I think um, um, that was the exact case in, in Europe. So you had a business called... Um, Eurolines all across Europe where you already had bus connections. Even in Germany for the historic situation of Berlin, there's always been bus services to and from Berlin. So for example, you had um, Hamburg to Berlin 15 times a day um, through a company that was called Berlin Linienbus, an old Deutsche Bahn subsidiary that um, ultimately also disappeared um, in the sort of market changes. Um, so the, 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 the product itself was there and the image was not really good. Um, and also the availability, the awareness with customers wasn't there at all. And I think that's that's probably, apart from scaling the business um, to its current size, probably our biggest achievement to really get that mind shift going and really change the image of bus travel. So I think we ultimately managed to, to really make it cool again and make it attractive to a much broader audience. Of course, people would initially come to us and say, okay, it's a very, very good price for me to travel from A to B. Um, but how we keep them is really the, the sort of surprise moment when they enter the buses, they book the, I mean, book the ticket initially and ultimately enter the bus and travel with us. And it's really a nice and comforting um, and, and easy to use experience. And this is how you ultimately build a loyal customer base. And I think this is where most sort of incumbent brands have just missed out on. And if you look at the, and that's why we also felt the opportunity in the US is so big because the product experience is just crap, full stop. And, um, and, and, and that's, that's what, what you need to change. And it's not, there's a certain point around the hardware and the bus itself and it needs to be modern and like a, a sort of service approach to it. But it's like the entire, how do you market it? How do you brand it? How do you sort of build that customer base over time? And how easy is it to use? And I think, um, and what's not to underestimate, we brought so much efficiency to the industry through the optimization that you have on the network planning, pricing, marketing side. 
that we can first produce the service so with our partners together at a much lower cost base. So the kilometer that we operate is much cheaper if we do it with our partners versus the incumbents that have integrated models. And we're much more efficient on the marketing side. It's much easier to use tech and convenience for our customers. So the impact of technology in the business, and that's something that's still striking to me until today, is completely underestimated. So if you look at the complexity that we're operating with, all the connections, all the possible combinations that you have in the network, if you run a bus, not like an, air, an airline with your flight from A to B, but we run A to G and all the connections in between and all the sort of possible combinations that you have, that creates a massive data problem that we solve through technology. On the planning side, we build our own software that makes it on the one hand efficient to operate our network, but also tries to perfectly match supply and demand at every given point in time over the year. So we have different schedules on a Tuesday versus a Friday, in a springtime versus summer versus winter, et cetera. So all this optimization and, and all the incumbent guys, they just don't have that transparency. They're lacking the technology, the data, the analytics tools, et cetera, to really drive this. And this is why we've been so disruptive. So, and that whole thing, ultimately built a product and a service level that was really changing the image and that made it um, so attractive to, to such a broad audience and, and target group. And that's for us, and that's what we felt, yes, is a good, good place to go to because this is the same challenge that we have here versus what we had in Europe before we launched. Fascinating. Uh, it seems almost kind of like it wasn't just one, you know, one of these innovations. It was business model plus brand plus, you know, kind of control. And, um, you know, and I love that. I think sometimes entrepreneurs mistake the advice to focus to being like literally do one extremely narrow, small thing. Whereas, you know, kind of trying to versus like focus on solving one problem for the customer that could potentially mean solving four or five smaller problems at the same time. So, um, I wanted to segue, uh, you know, the conversation here before we, we wrap up into um, the future and uh, or the very recent past when it comes to you launched a Flix train and, and like you've had several rebrands. So I actually don't know what you guys are officially called these days. And it was, it was Flix bus, mine, Fern bus at one point when you merged. And then um, I, I heard, you know, various announcements about calling yourself Flix mobility these days. And but specifically, I, I think the kind of, you know, um, eyebrow raising announcement that I saw, especially being in the U.S. where we have Amtrak and that's it, was the idea that you guys started Flix train. And I, I remember thinking, like, what, do they just, like, lay train tracks? How do you start a train company? Is, is that, like, a thing? And um, I realized there's a bunch of smaller train companies in a lot of these, these countries um, that operate, you know, similarly, obviously, they're not the same to some of the, the charter bus companies, and you guys seem to adapt your model. And I'm curious, you know, uh, how similar was the train model to the bus model? And who are these guys that, guys that run, you know, uh, trains that compete with Deutsche Bahn that you were just able to kind of, like, snatch up and because that that's just insane to me yeah i mean first maybe to, to sort of get a little bit of clarity here the 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 company's named flix mobility our products is flix bus and flix train um and we've actually and coming to the train business if if we talk to sort of outsiders they're always like how can you do trains and this is surprising to me interestingly we've actually had this in our investor pitch already in 2012 that we would do buses and we would do trains on top of it um, at some point. So this is also part of the long-term strategy and vision. And for us, it's really more of an extension of our core product where we would say, if you enter into market, the bus actually be perfect mean um, to go in there because it's, it's a decent sized vehicle. So you have enough seats and like capacity, but it's not as big that you have all the risk of just not filling it up and losing a lot of money in the first place. So 
we start into market, um, would open up an initial network, would maybe connect the cities three, four times a day. If it works, you add more frequency. If it works even better, you go into bigger buses, i.e. double-deckers. Um, and then over time, you penetrate as much of the market as possible. And then, and this was the situation for us in Germany. We felt there's so much demand out there, and there's also some routes where we can't properly serve it through um, the bus as a means of transportation. We should also add trains to the portfolio. So ultimately, what we, what, it's just a different mean of supply for us. Um, and it's in the end, it's just a bigger bus, if you will. So we're selling it through the same platform, same technology, um, same model overall. Um, and it's a very similar um, customer group with, I guess, the, the nice add-on that we're attracting a, a customer group that was difficult for us to tackle through bus because there's still a certain awareness of, of, of sort of preference. I'd rather travel on a train. So we're actually adding another layer and segment into our possible customer group. And there's a lot of synergy and spillover effects between the two. So you can feed in bus services onto the trains. You can focus on the larger, longer distance trunk routes on the train services where it's actually even more efficient, also on a production cost per seat um, perspective to run trains. Um, and then, of course, we, we also looked at the market. And if you look at the, the train markets in Europe, most of them are relatively heavily regulated. Um, so there's a lot of regulation around how do you get access to tracks, where are you allowed to run, what's the sort of vehicles that you may, may be using, et cetera, et cetera. So it's quite complicated, much more complicated than the bus market. And at the same time, it's 10 times the size of bus. So it's a massive opportunity and it's still run in a vast majority by state-owned companies. And um, I mean, pretty easy to see that the efficiency, customer focus, and product experience of state-owned companies isn't to the best of what you could possibly get in the market. So we felt there's a huge opportunity and there's some, actually something like you had in low-cost airlines 20 years ago when the flagship carriers thought that's never going to be a big business and never going to be a real model. If you now look at who's making money in airlines, then it's mostly the low-cost guys that are doing this very efficiently on a, on a strong cost base and with a strong customer focus as well. And that's, that's why we felt this opportunity is so massive and we need to go in there um, to attract an additional target group, have another mean of to, to sort of compete on longer routes where the bus is maybe not the perfect mean of um, supply. Um, and also, as I said, um, leverage on that opportunity to build that next massive market um, for us and do all of this with the existing sort of assets that we have in the organization, i.e. our team, our marketing machinery, the tech platform. And then we've the only sort of missing piece in, in that end was that we need to um, that we had to um, get um, rolling stock going, and that was actually the, the most complicated part um, to get these trains um, that we're now running. Um, and that's it's actually interestingly it's it's old material from Deutsche Bahn that we refurbished, so we bought it off from them through a third party, refurbished it, and to also bring it to our product experience and, and understanding of this should be the service level, um, and then now running it on, on multiple tracks across Germany. Um, and continue to also expand that um, business across Europe. So next step is going to be Sweden um, and, and really feel this is a business that potentially in the markets where it's possible may be much bigger than our bus business at some point. Well, so I wanted to actually quickly follow up on that. So I actually was under the impression you guys were using a company called Leo Express um, as your main supplier. So you also just said that you took your own trains and refurbished them. What, like, uh, can you clarify that? Or is it both? <laughs> We, we've sort of um, used um, to initially launch into the market existing providers and also integrated them onto our platform, um, which was more of a, let's say, a bridging scenario until we had um, the 
sort of branded um, rolling stock available. Uh, so now what we're doing is we actually put um, the rolling stock into a leasing company that we don't really control. Um, we're sort of um, involved on the equity side a bit to, to ultimately get it going. But again, here, um, the business is operated, the trains are operated by um, smaller, mid-sized partners that would run certain routes for us or, as, or a set of routes. Um, and then we, on the commercial side, have a similar agreement with them as with our um, um, bus partners. So again, we, we very much believe in the, in the potential of distributed um, production um, and, and, um, and the sort of set of suppliers that we can work with. Um, and, and again, here on the product experience side, as we've kind of bridged our way into it, the initial product wasn't the ultimate idea of this should be our train um, product and, and service level. That's why we said we need to, to use this to um, get our way into the market, but then over time really move it into a branded, curated and fully refurbished um, product. And the next step will be to build and buy fully dedicated, specified flex trains, um, some new material. But this is again, something that takes multiple years to really get it specified, get it built, and then ultimately get it um, um, on the tracks. So uh, last of all, well, final question Jochen and it's it's much more of a, about again the company really I mean you've made some acquisitions there's been mergers it's been this tremendous kind of growth tear that you've been on but it did just start out as the three of you which would have had a culture of its own then and now you've got this large business how have you maintained or did you maintain the culture that you think you had in the first place to where you are now or if you let it kind of evolve in different ways hmm. yeah and it's a uh, i think it's a it's a very very important point for every young company and especially every fast-growing company that um the culture that you're creating is is super super important and valuable um we've had probably know that quote and peter Drucker said culture is strategy for breakfast this is totally true, um, yeah. and this is what, what we've what we've seen all along the way. We, we obviously we did have a clear vision and strategy, um, and we had um, a certain culture that we had from the early days that we didn't maybe unlike to to few other companies we didn't really write it down. It was more like we lived this, and this was how we um, also um, transferred this to the team. This is easy if you're like fifty to hundred people, maybe if you scale this to a few hundred or, or over a thousand people over time, that's more difficult, and then. I think what we tried is to maintain at least the, uh, at least, um, I mean, especially the critical parts of the culture um, where we felt we need to be very entrepreneurial. We want to be very fast in decision-making. We want to act as a team. We want to put our customer first and like customer value first um, and want to make sure that we, we look for solutions rather than for problems. So that whole um, um, solution-oriented mindset and entrepreneurial idea, we want to maintain this over time, even as the company grows. And then we, we said, we need to write it down as at some point we need to continuously explain it to our teams and make sure that we and our entire leadership team really lives these values um, and lives up to these values and just is on a very continuous basis. And this is something where we're investing a lot of our time um, into to make sure that we keep this because in every situation, every market and all our markets have been very competitive. Um, this, is, this is really critical and this is the differentiator that we have. So it's really about the team finding better, more innovative, faster solutions to whatever challenge we may have. And that's nothing that you can buy as a corporate really. Um, and that's why we feel this is also going forward to a super, super valuable strategic asset for us. And that's why we, we continue to invest there and, and invest is, is primarily around um, spending time thinking it through. I'm trying to make sure that everybody understands it, 
and do, taking all the small things that happen along the way and make sure that we're moving into the right direction and really everybody understands and lives our values. That was terrific. So um, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us on this week's uh, podcast. I mean, it's been a, I think, as I said, it's, a, it's been a tremendous, uh, tremendous journey over what nine fairly short years journey, no pun intended, really. I mean, for, we're, we are an audio podcast, but those that are, you know, we, the, your virtual background behind you is this bright green train. So, uh, you know, it just goes to show how important that part of the, the kind of the future for Flix Mobility will be. So again, uh, Jochen Enger, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Um, and it's absolutely my pleasure. Okay, uh, so uh, those tuning in, thank you ever so much for joining us. This has been another episode of How I Got Here. These are Focuswire and Mozio's uh, weekly chats with entrepreneurs and innovators in travel and transportation. If you've come across us randomly and you're not a subscriber, you can do so by subscribing to us on a number of platforms, the usual ones, especially Amazon, Alexa, Spotify, and iTunes. So please do that. You'll get a regular update of our weekly uh, new publications. So uh, thanks ever so much again uh, to Jochen and on David and I. On behalf, thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check slash move for a complete write up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages, and get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.